0: Your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, just lift up your hand. Uh, Mark's got a stack here ready to go, ready to pass out. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. Genesis chapter 12. And we're just going to read the first three verses this morning. These words written thousands of years ago by Moses as he was carried along by the Spirit of God. Father God, I pray uh, that today and next week as we look at Genesis 12, you will help us to feel the weight and the significance of what you are doing. There are promises here that are made to Abraham. There are promises here that are made to us. Ultimately, there are promises here that are made to Christ. And I pray that you would help us to understand the significance of what you are are doing and that we would be blessed by the preaching of your word that you would open our hearts so that we may receive it, understand it, be sustained by it for man shall not live by bread alone but by the words that come from your mouth. So help us to feast today on your word in Jesus name.
1: Amen. Well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. I don't know if y'all saw the news this week or not, but if you didn't, here's, here's the, one of the big headlines of the week. Religion is going extinct. Have y'all see that article? That religion is becoming extinct. There's a new major study out um, studying several major Western civilized countries that has now come to the conclusion that religion is on its way out the door. Matter of fact, the study concluded that within the next... I think decade, religion will be completely extinct. There'll be no trace of it in seven different Western European nations. And I can't remember what nations uh, that there were that were listed. Let's see here. I think it was um, Switzerland. Oh, they're not all European. There's Switzerland. There's New Zealand, Netherlands, Ireland, Finland, Czech Republic, Canada, our neighbors to the north, Austria, in Australia, all these nations, according to this study, there will be no trace of any type of religion left within a few years. Now, to that I have to say a couple of things. Number one, if by religion you mean empty rituals that people do to feel good about themselves or try to earn favor with God, then good, <laughs> let it go extinct. Um, the second thing is... I don't believe that statistic because everybody worships something. Everybody has a religion. I was watching, I'm a huge soccer fan, and so I was watching uh, the U.S. play Argentina some this weekend, and uh, you hear the fans in the stands, and you look at them, what are they doing? They're raising their hands. They're singing songs, okay? They are afterwards getting autographs signed and They are worshiping in a way. And everybody worships something. There are some who put so much time and money and effort into their jobs that it becomes their religion. And so I don't think religion is ever going to be dead because people are always worshiping something. Now, if by religion they mean the one true religion that is true, genuine, authentic, relational, faith, ...with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ alone, well, no chance that that's going extinct. No chance. Because the Bible from the very beginning to the very end tells a story. A story of a tribe, of a family, of a people who belong to God. And the story is a story of triumph... There's no stopping this tribe. Now, there's periods in history. There's periods in, throughout this Bible. There are in periods in modern history when, when God's people seem to be in trouble. When there seems to be um, the, a period where the church might be going extinct. But it will never go extinct. It can't go extinct because the Bible has promises in it. And if you go to Revelation, you see the great promise that God's people from every tribe and every nation will be gathered around the throne worshiping him. They will succeed. The Jesus tribe, in the end, wins. And as we've been going through this series, the Jesus tribe, um, which admittedly is a little abstract, and some of you out there might be still trying to figure out what on earth are they talking about. And so I want to take a few moments to sort of recap and reiterate why we're doing this. And then launch into what I believe is the most important, one of the most important passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Matter of fact, this whole section really, it's not just Genesis 12. It's Genesis 12 and then 13 and then 15 and 17 and and then there's a part of 18 and a part of 22 where God promises things to Abraham and enters into a covenant with Abraham, this Abrahamic covenant is one of the most important turning points in all of Scripture. And so we're going to study it. Um, We're only going to be able to get part of the way through today. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you in advance. And we may not get all the way done next week. So this may end up being a three-part sermon. So, I do have mercy on your souls, and so I'm not going to preach all three parts today. We'll never get to the meal, but I'm going to preach the first part today, and then we'll go and see how many other parts it takes. It may take four parts, I don't know. Now, let me talk a little bit about the Jesus tribe. Some of you may still be wondering, okay, what is this Jesus tribe? Well, let me take you back a little bit. Deemer and I, about six months ago, began to feel the burden on our heart to preach about the family, to do a series about the family, and relationships, and even the broader context of the church family. And so as we began to, to think about that and pray about that, God began to broaden the scope a little bit. And I liken it to our year ago when we did uh, a few sermons on adoption. And when we did, did sermons on adoption, we didn't just come out and say, hey, it's good to adopt children. Go adopt children and give you some biblical principles to, to, to base that upon. To say, hey, this is why it's good to go And to adopt children or to uh, support adoption or whatever. And we could build a moral case around that and say, yes, adoption is good. And you should be supporting adoption in the world. But instead, we decided what was more important was to go to the foundational truth upon which adoption is built. And that is, adoption is a demonstration of a greater adoption. It's a demonstration of the gospel. And so... If you encourage people from a moral perspective that it's right to go out and adopt children, but you don't give a biblical groundwork for that as to why. Why is it right to go adopt children? And the reason it's right to go and adopt children and support adoption is because we've been adopted. Because the gospel message in and of itself is this message of adoption. And when you go out and you support adoption and you adopt children, you are proclaiming the gospel. If we send you out with just a moral imperative, it's good to go adopt, and you go and you adopt and you don't understand that it's imaging something much greater, which is the adoption of sons and daughters into the family of God by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, then we haven't done our job. We really haven't. And so the same principle applies... Well, we began to think about family. And we could preach a sermon or two or three or a dozen on the family. And believe me, I've preached a lot of sermons on the family. And we could challenge all of us, myself included, to do a better job at, at, at leading our homes or being part of carrying out our roles within our homes. And we could do that and we could give you some moral reasons that we are to do that give you some strong scripture to back that up and we are going to do that as we go through this series but we wanted to come back and get foundational again why is family important and wait a second here there's something bigger underneath your immediate bloodline family there's a bigger family a family that takes primary importance and that is the family of god that you have brothers and sisters in the family of God. You see, all these other relationships, all these other relational institutions, whether it be marriage or whether it be father-son, father-daughter, all these things, these things one day will be consumed into the greater truth that we are part of the family of God. Jesus goes out of his way to say that in heaven there won't be any giving of marriage. There won't be marriage. Because there's going to be a complete oneness with the Father, a relationship with God that can no longer be broken. And all these earthly relationships, your family, the relationship between a father and a son, uh, the relationship between a husband and a wife, all these things are meant to point towards something much greater and much more important, which is the Jesus tribe. So why are we going through the Jesus tribe? To establish a foundation of relationships. God's relationship with with his people, the primary relationship upon which all other relationships should be built. And this passage today is huge in understanding God's relationship with his people. It's absolutely huge. Fathers cannot father well unless they understand the father and his love for his people. Children cannot honor parents well and obey if they do not understand what. It means to be a child of God. Parents and children cannot relate well if they don't understand the roles, even within the Godhead, of father and son. Husbands cannot love well if they do not understand the role of Jesus toward his church. And wives cannot love well if they do not understand the role of the church, Jesus' bride, in relation to her husband. We cannot exist as a community well if we do not understand that community in relation to the fact that The ultimate community is is in relation to the fact that we are one in Christ. There's no longer Jew, nor Greek, male, nor female, slave, nor free. We cannot exist as families well if we do not understand that our primary familial bond is with our brothers and sisters in Christ, even above our natural bloodline, familial bond. There are some of you in here that perhaps are strained and your relationship is stressed with those who are in your immediate family. And you know what it means. Maybe you're strained and stressed because you are following what the Lord has told you to do. And that has put stress on your family relationships. You understand what Jesus says, unless you're willing to leave your home, your your brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers. Unless you're willing to do that and follow me, then you really have no part of me. But God's design, and we will get to this as we go through the series, is for the family not to exist like that. For the family to be a unit that magnifies and glorifies God. So just as we did with adoption, when we focused more on the gospel and what the gospel is in relation to adoption, what adoption is in relation to the gospel, so too, as we talk about relationships and families and marriages, and we'll talk more about these things, first we have to establish the Jesus Tribe, so that's why we're doing this. So, a little bit of recap. First, the very first week of the Jesus Tribe, actually it was the second week, but it was the first week we really got into it in earnest. We talked about God. We started with God. We started about talked about His nature, the Trinity, the triune nature of the Godhead, and we talked about within that nature, within God's character and who He is, relationships are perfectly exemplified. God needs no human person to be happy. One of the worst things I think that you can ever hear, and if you hear someone say this, just correct them with gentleness and love. That God created man because he was lonely. To me, that is borderline heresy. Because God is in no way in need of you or me or any person that's ever been created. God is perfect, has perfect relationship within his own nature, and he created the world and mankind as an overflow of his glory, as a demonstration of his magnificence. In the next sermon in the Jesus tribe, we look at man, how God created man in his image, therefore he created man to be a relational being, if God is a relational being then mankind is a relational being we've been created in the image of god and so god looks at adam and says it is not good for man to be alone and he creates woman and only when he creates woman is man fully imaging god the way he should when he's in relationship with another created being like himself so woman is a perfect complement for man Just as the persons of the Trinity within the Godhead have perfect unity, they have perfect complementarity, they have have roles, unique roles and oneness, so too the institution of marriage was given so that we can image God with uniqueness of roles, with a oneness, and with complementarity. Then the next week we looked at how relationships suffered a huge blow when sin Entered the world. Satan hates God. Therefore he hates God's image. He hates any relationship that magnifies God. Therefore he aims to destroy relationships. He aims to destroy the relationship between man and God. He, he comes up, slithers up next to Eve and says, Did God really say? Now he doesn't want you to eat that because you'll be like him. And so he puts within Eve's mind... A seed of doubt about God's goodness towards her and towards Adam. And he undermines that relationship between man and God. And then he also undermines the relationship with man and man. Within humanity. Because there's Adam not off in the distance plowing a field like some of the pictures from your Sunday school may have showed you here's Eve over here getting in trouble all by herself and Adam's right out there he's the innocent party in the whole situation he's just plowing his field when he walks up and she says honey have a bite that's not how it worked he's with her according to the scriptures listening as the serpent lies to her and instead of carrying out the role that God had given him to step in and to be the spiritual leader in his home and to point out the lie and to stand between his wife and Satan and take those arrows and those lies and say no Satan he doesn't he leaves her alone and she takes the lead and makes the decision to go ahead and eat of that fruit and then we see their shame after that they're ashamed Of their their nakedness, they hide when God comes to the garden. And relationships have been damaged. And so, man is banished from the garden, from the land, from the presence of of God. And the world is cursed. Death comes into the world, but hope is not dead. We have the great passage in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, this is God pronouncing a judgment upon the serpent. And he says this, which gives hope to mankind. He says, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or your translation may say, he shall crush your head, which I think gets better to the meaning of the text But here's the point, whether you use bruise or crush, it doesn't matter. Here's the point, all throughout history, Satan's there nipping, nipping, nipping at the heel of those who are in the Jesus tribe, trying to destroy the offspring of the woman. Nipping, 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 but there will come a day, and there has come a day, when the Son of Man and the Son of God steps on the head of the serpent. He doesn't just bruise it, he bruises it with a crushing blow. And so now two tribes begin at that point. There's the offspring or the seed of the serpent. There's the offspring or the seed of the woman. And two families, two peoples, two streams that flow throughout history, that flow throughout Scripture. If you go to the book of Proverbs, it always talks about there's two ways. There's the way of the wise and there's the way of the foolish. Those two streams. It flows all the way from Genesis all the way down to Revelation when the final blow is dealt to the serpent tribe. The deadly blow has already been dealt at the cross. Satan's just a little snake swarming around with his head crushed. You ever run over an animal and you see it still flopping? That's Satan. He's flopping around making a lot of noise, trying to cause a lot of problems, but he's dead. He's been crushed. He can still cause a lot of damage in our lives, but the final blow has been dealt, and the deadly blow will be finalized when Jesus comes again. So we see the seed of the serpent as it progresses. Cain kills his brother Abel. Okay, And then we see in Cain's lineage, particularly when we get to the seventh in the lineage of Cain, a guy by the name of Lamech, who not only sins and, and, uh, and kills someone, he's boastful about it. And then the line of the woman or the Jesus tribe, which is what we've been calling it, continues. This time through Seth, who is the replacement son for Abel after he's been killed. And the seventh in the line of Seth is a guy by the name of Enoch. And the Bible says that Enoch walked with the Lord and was no more. There's the contrast. There's someone reveling in their sin and there's someone with such a relationship with God that God takes him home early to be in the presence of God forevermore. And then last week we looked at Babel and how not all community is good. Not all community is good. In the case of Babel, we saw man-centered serpent tribe community as they attempted to preserve themselves by rejecting God's word and doing what they wanted to do. They tried to exalt themselves, they tried to make a name for themselves instead of trying to make a name for God or exalting God. And they tried to save themselves. They made a way. They, they built this ziggurat, which was, which was a pagan temple, really. And they were trying to make their own way to God. And we saw how community fails when it's not the type of community that God wants us to have. And therefore, it's destroyed by God. And so now we come to one of the most important sections in all of the Bible. Today, we're going to focus on the covenant the Abrahamic covenant and guys I forgot to get my clicker so you guys are going to just hang with me because I actually have a lot of clicking to do today all right or you can bring me the clicker whichever but before yeah bring me the clicker get it hooked up and bring me the clicker while I take a little parenthetical moment here now before we get to Abraham let me mention one story we we sort of skipped over and wasn't that we missed it we just didn't feel led to preach on it but Let's go back and between the Tower of Babel and we, Enoch and Lamech and all of that is the story of Noah. And the Bible is a story. It's a true story, so it's history. But in the story of Noah, if you're reading it like it were a drama, you get to this point and you see that the whole world is corrupt. It seems like the serpent tribe is having a whole lot more success than the Jesus tribe is. And they've taken over practically the whole world. You got it? No? All right. Don't worry about it. It seems like they've taken over the whole world until there's only one family left. It's the family of Noah. And so God, as you know the story well, tells Noah to build an ark because he's going to bring judgment upon the world. He's going to send a flood, and, and but he's going to preserve Noah and his family and preserve um, some of his creation, his, the animals of the land and the birds of the air. And so he has Noah build this ark and we know the story. God sends the judgment on the earth, the whole earth, the whole earth is flooded. And there's only one family that remains. And if you're reading this as a story, you get to this point and you're like, yeah, God did it. The Jesus tribe won. They got down to their last family, but they won and the serpent tribe's gone and Noah comes out of the ark God established the the covenant with Noah he gives his rainbow in the sky and he even gives him a a promise that he'll never flood the earth again never uh, destroy the earth by a flood again and then he gives Noah a mandate which is almost identical to the mandate given to Adam and Eve which is to be fruitful and multiply to go out and fill the earth again with his image so, you could put the end right there and say, yeah, it's over, right? Wasn't very long, wasn't very long after they got out, out of the ark when sin again just begins to take over. Babel happens after the ark. It doesn't take long. You see, they fall right back into sin again. If you know the story, Noah gets drunk, is in his tent, naked, naked. One of his sons walks in, his son named Ham walks in, and the Bible's not real clear as to what the sin is that Ham commits, but he commits some sort of sin that dishonors his father. He jokes about his father's nakedness with his brothers, and maybe there's even some sexual perversion indicated in that passage as well. But regardless, Ham sins greatly against his father and against God. And we see coming out of the line of Ham... Is the people who built the Tower of Babel, is the people who inhabit the land of Canaan. And that comes out of Ham's family. And so you're sitting there going, wait a second here. I thought the serpent tribe was wiped out. And so we learn something very important from the story of Noah a spiritual aspect to these lineages that is not limited to bloodline. And we see that it becomes very evident that man is a sinner from birth. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It becomes so clear. And it becomes so clear. It's not just about what family you're a part of. This whole idea of the serpent tribe and the Jesus tribe is something much bigger than just lineage. Although Lineage, God can use families and lineage to bring people into the Jesus tribe. It, being a part of it, is something much more big, something spiritual, something we can't miss. And we have to understand that if we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant as well. Because there is a way to look at the Abrahamic covenant just from merely a physical perspective. Physical promises made to a physical family, to an ethnic group. And if that's the only perspective with which you come to the Abrahamic Covenant, you miss the whole Abrahamic Covenant. You miss it. You miss the importance of it. And so I think the Noah story helps us see that as well, the importance of how we are to approach the text when God says, I'm going to do something through a family. And that we're supposed to see that there is a spiritual lineage that we are called to be a part of that is much greater than a physical lineage. So that brings us to Abraham. And that was an awful long introduction, so this may end up being a four-part four sermon. We'll see. Genesis 12, 1. Genesis 12, 1. And now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. The first thing I want us to see is the contrast that Moses continues to develop as we go through Genesis. He continues to develop a contrast between the people of God and the people of the serpent. And so, if you contrast this passage to what we had just studied in Babel, you'll notice a few things. Now, remember, the Babylonians built a city, they gathered together, they did not want to go. And the first thing God tells Abraham is go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. And so there is a command to go. And the Babylonians refused God's command to be fruitful, multiply, and spread out upon the earth. And therefore spread God's image out upon the earth. Instead they gathered. They refused to scatter. They refused to obey God. They refused God's word. But Abraham hears God say go and he goes. And then he says to Abraham, he's going to make of him a great nation, which is exactly what the Babylonians wanted, what those people of Babel wanted. They wanted to make a great city out of their own handiwork, out of their own power with bricks. They learned how to make bricks. I think the text points that out for a reason. It's like the, it's like the invention of the wheel. I mean, the, this guy walks out of his workshop and goes, I got a brick. And they all go, "Woo! we can build now. And they they begin to build buildings and and this tower, and they're so proud of themselves of what they can do with their hands. And God says to Abraham, I, God, will make you into a great nation. It has nothing to do with your handiwork. And then the third thing I see as a contrast here is in 11, chapter 11, verse 44, um, we read, thank you, Mr. John, we read, When they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us what? Make a name for ourselves. Yes. They aim to make a name for themselves, and God destroys their plans. Yet with Abraham, what does he tell Abraham? Abram at this point. By the way, forgive me if I exchange Abram and Abraham as I go through the sermon here. It's the same guy there is an important reason why his name was changed and we will get to that eventually what does God say to Abram and I will make of you a great nation I will bless you and make your name great the only time it is permissible for our name to be made great is if God makes it great in his purposes and in his plan and whenever he makes our name great it's always ultimately to make his name great The serpent tribe resists God's word and tries to make something of themselves by their own power. The Jesus tribe members can only give credit to God who does a work of grace in them and works on their behalf. And so now these promises that God makes to Abraham and the subsequent covenant upon which these promises, that's based upon these promises is absolutely vital to our understanding of the whole Bible If we misunderstand the nature of the covenant and the promises upon which the covenant is based, then we misunderstand much of what God is doing, not only throughout Scripture, but even today. Our understanding of the the social political world that's happening today, when you open up, nobody opens a newspaper anymore, when you open up your internet browser and you see chaos in the Middle East, and you see Israel worried about getting bombed and you see these things you have to come at it from a perspective and how do you come at that news and if we misunderstand this abrahamic covenant i guarantee you you will come at that news from a very dangerous perspective and a perspective that undermines what god is globally doing with his church so we'll get to that later too but it's important that we Look at these promises. This, this promise here, and this covenant that we'll look at, is a further unfolding of God's story. I've got a picture here. And I'm going to unfold it. And so I want kids to kind of think of it this way. What's happening in the book of Genesis? In Genesis 3.15, we have a first kind of unfolding of God's plan. There's going to be an offspring... Singular, offspring, person who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And, and so he unfolds his plan. And all throughout Scripture we have farther, further and further unfoldings until we get to the cross. And so I'm going to unfold it a little bit more. And in this story today, there's a major unfolding. And so you look at this and you say, okay, I, I'm beginning to see now what God's doing. So we unfold it. What, what, what's this picture of? kids? Isaac? Okay, I was hoping you'd just say map, but Europe is good. Try, let's see here. You're right, it is Europe. So Isaac's so intelligent that he sees a piece of the map and can tell what the whole picture is. Okay, but so we have these unfoldings here, and you see a little bit. Okay, okay, I see what God's doing, and then God unfolds folds it more and more, and then the ultimate unfolding happens at the cross. And, and even after the cross, as Jesus takes his disciples and says, let me take you back from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Malachi, and let me just walk you through how every single verse is about me. And so, uh, no particular reason I chose Europe or a map, it's just I needed something fairly big that could fold up. So don't read anything into the map or Europe, all right? It's just, I wanted a picture okay? that could fold up, and that's what's happening here. This, this Genesis 12 passage and the subsequent covenant that we're going to read is a major unfolding of Genesis 3:15. So, as we go through this, there's three things I want us to examine. Three questions, and you can back that up if you would just a bit, because we're not at that point yet. Three... Point, three things I want us to ask as we go through this sermon and what will become kind of a mini-series within a series. Number one, what is the nature of the Abrahamic Covenant? What is the nature of it? What's it all about? We're going to look at that today. Number two, what are the promises upon which the Abrahamic Covenant stands? We will touch on that today, maybe. And we'll hammer it out more next week. And number three, who are, there's three questions. This last one's the most important. Who are the heirs of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant? And we'll hit this next week, Lord willing. So first, what is, the first question is, what is the nature of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, first, what is a covenant? Okay, a covenant, okay, to help our kids understand covenant, okay, it's not, it's, it's an oath-bound commitment to keep a promise whereby one party solemnly pledges to bless or serve another party in some specified way. Sometimes the keeping of the promise depends upon the meeting of certain conditions by a party or more. Uh, On other occasions, the promise may be unilateral or unconditional. Okay, so it's a covenant. It's kind of like a, today we maybe refer to it kind of like a legal contract. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word beritz, upon which which, which is the word for covenant, Okay? It actually means, its root word means to cut, to cut in half, to divide. And what we'll see here in a minute when we get to Genesis 15 is that there's this elaborate ceremony that, that God tells Abraham, Abram at that point to carry out, which was to cut some animals in half and, and to put the two halves apart. And because this is what would happen is that when you entered into a covenant with someone, you take an animal or more than one animal and you cut it in half. I know this sounds kind of gruesome. But you cut it in half and you take the two parts and both parties of the covenant then walk through in between those animals. They walk in between the two, the two halves of the animal and that's how they pledge that solemn commitment. And in reality they're saying something along the lines of, may what's been done to these animals be done to one or more of us if we do not keep this covenant. And so it was a solemn, it was a serious thing. Now in the New Testament, the Greek... Translates it as, um, it uses the word in Greek for testament, which gives you a little bit of insight into what our Bible is divided into. The New Testament and the Old Testament. So you could translate that, the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. So I want us to look today at the nature of this Abrahamic Covenant. This is foundational stuff. We've already read Genesis 12 which lays out the promises, but now I want to read out, read Genesis 15 for us. So you can turn there, if you would, just a couple of pages over, and read with me Genesis 15. I will not have it on the screen, so you're just going to have to follow along. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God... What will you give me for I continue childless in the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Monumental verse in Scripture. Verse 6 of chapter 15. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. And the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The first thing I want us to see is that the Abrahamic covenant, and we're talking about the nature of what it is, is a covenant of grace. You can very clearly see that in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and in the other passages we're going to talk about, that this covenant is not based upon Abram's initiative. Abram did not go to God and say, Hey, God, I need you to come into covenant with me. God chose Abram. God pulled Abram out of this land of Ur, the Chaldeans, meaning he was an idolater. He was living in an idolatrous nation. And Scripture in no way indicates that he chose God or that he earned or merited God's favor upon him. It does not say God saw that Abraham was a great guy. It just says that God chose him, called him out. It was God, in his own prerogative of divine election, he chose Abram. And we see God's grace. God says to Abram, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is God's grace. God is putting himself around Abram like a shield. God is giving Abram great reward. Making Abram great promises. Not based upon anything Abram has done. But we see grace evident even further in this second aspect of the covenant. And the second thing I want us to point out is that it is a a unilateral covenant. It is a unilateral covenant. In verse 12, it says, when the sun was going down and deep sleep fell upon Abram, okay, God puts Abram to sleep. He puts him to sleep, knocks him out. Now, in that sleep, in that great darkness he was in, he sees visions and he he sees God spoken to him about what's going to happen. But then in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. These are are symbolic representations of the presence of God. It says they passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What did I say earlier about the covenant? The way a covenant was ratified was that both parties would walk through the pieces. But not in this case. Only God walks through the pieces. Only God goes through the split animals symbolizing and demonstrating that this was a unilateral covenant. This is God's covenant with Abram. God is doing this. God is going to make sure these promises come true. God is going to make it happen. Verse Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may... Make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Now, I do want us to see something, though. This is a unilateral covenant, but it's not necessarily a, an unconditional covenant. Now, in the first couple of sections here, in Genesis 12, 1-3, Genesis 15, 4-5, okay, we don't see... Um, a whole lot that seems to indicate that there's any sort of conditions that God has placed upon this covenant, just that God's going to do it. But then we get to other passages that kind of lead us to the other conclusion. Genesis 18, verse 17 through 19 says this, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram, Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham was, sh- shall surely come, become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him. I have chosen him, this is unilateral, God's work, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now here's the condition. So that the Lord may bring to Abram what he has promised. And then in Genesis 22, 15. It says, an angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, unilateral, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. But then all of a sudden there's this condition. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, this was the instance where God had told Abram, to Abraham at that point to sacrifice Isaac, and he was willing to do it. Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sands that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because, because, because you have obeyed my voice. So it seems that there's an aspect of the covenant here that is conditional based upon some of these texts that we've read. The promises are both conditional, yet they're rock solid in their surety. How so? Because of faith. The conditions are based upon faith. Knowing the way of the Lord, following the Lord, seeking the Lord is something that's done by faith, not by works. Faith in the covenant-keeping God, the one who went through the animals, who went through the split animals, faith in our hope in Him that He can keep the covenant is the only means by which we can actually do the things that God asks us to do. Faith in God's grace enabled and empowered and ensured godly, holy living for Abraham. Just as it does for us today in the new covenant. By grace you have been saved Through faith unto good works. Again, we see conditions. But he acted in faith. Go back to the story of Isaac. What does he say? Because you have not spared your own son. Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. And what was Abraham doing? He was acting in faith. His faith was so strong that he believed God, when God asked him to do something that seemed crazy and impossible, he believed God could still bring a fulfillment that there would come an offspring from Isaac that would be the one. He knew Isaac was the one through whom the blessing of the covenant would be fulfilled, yet he did not doubt God when God told him to sacrifice the very one whom the covenant promises, covenant promises were made to. No one should come to the faulty conclusion that this makes the covenant of Abraham a covenant of works. Works are deeds done in self-reliance to earn God's favor by showing oneself meritorious. But the obedience which Abraham had, though not perfect, was the inevitable outcome of his faith in God's gracious promises. He obeyed God and offered his only son Isaac on the altar not to earn God's favor, but because he was so confident in God's promise to give him posterity through Isaac that he believed that God could raise up Isaac from the dead. And therefore he could obey God in the most difficult thing that God asked him to do. Because he had faith. It wasn't works. Hebrews eleven seventeen. Well, first of all, Genesis 21, 12 tells Abraham is told that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Hebrews eleven seventeen. it says, By faith, by faith, by faith, not works, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So he takes action, but it's not works because it's by faith. He offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Obedience is the necessary outcome of truly trusting God's promises. So obedience is therefore made a condition of inheriting God's promises, which are granted by grace through faith. This means that the covenant of Abraham is just like the new covenant under which we live. For it too has conditions, not works, but obedience by faith. John three thirty six whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not, obey obedience those are things we do not works but acts of obedience in faith whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god remains on him hebrews 5 9 and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him first john 5 2 by this we know that we love that we love the children of god when we love god and obey his commandments so obedience becomes the evidence of grace. And the covenant of Abraham and the new covenant under which we live today are one covenant of grace. Because in both, gracious promises are made to the sinner. And the sinner receives those promises by faith and then lives out a life that shows he believes those promises and is obedient. This, by the way, is exactly what we're talking about in our community group in Battling Unbelief. So we also see that it's a covenant of faith, received by faith. It is a covenant received by faith. It is not a covenant of works. Please don't misunderstand me. Okay, The most key verse in the whole covenant is verse 6. And he believed the Lord. That means he had faith. And he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. After God has once again reiterated the promises on which the covenant is based. We see this amazing statement of faith. It is received by faith. Abraham is made right with God. Abraham is justified by, by covenant keeping? No. Abraham is justified by faith. Romans 4, 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as Righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes, that's faith, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing, by faith? So, if the things that you're doing in the church that you believe are honoring to God, maybe it's serving in the nursery, maybe it's going out and sharing Christ with people, whatever it might be that you're doing. Are you doing those things by your own ability? Are you doing those as some sort of work or the law, or are they an outflow of your faith? That's the question. That's the dividing line between works and grace. And then that Galatians 5, 3 passage goes on to say, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, as righteousness. So it's a covenant of grace, it's a unilateral covenant, and that God is the one who makes sure and ensures that it's gonna happen. It's a covenant received by faith, it's an everlasting covenant. One of the differences between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant that will be given about 430 years after this covenant is because is that the Mosaic covenant becomes obsolete as it is fulfilled in Christ. But the Abrahamic covenant is eternal and goes on forever in Christ. So there's a difference between those two covenants. This is an everlasting, eternal covenant. Genesis seventeen seven. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. It is one with the new covenant. Finally, it is a covenant based upon divine promises. And we got to finish, so I'm not going to go much into the divine promises, but I'm going to give you what they are. I'm going to give you them so you can go and write them down, and you can go and study them, and then come back next week ready to eat up some more of the Word. Now, most commentaries, maybe even in your study Bibles, will point out three promises that are made to Abraham in these passages. But I... ...believe there is a fourth promise as well... ...that actually makes sure all the other three happen. Okay? The first promise... Okay, ...I'm going to give them to you all right there up on the screen. There's the promise of amazing posterity. There's this overarching theme throughout the rest of Genesis... That, ...of the seed... ...of the, uh, the, the people who are going to come from the line of Abraham. There's this amazing promise of posterity. We don't have time to go through some of the texts that point that out today... We'll do that next week. Then there's a promise of land possession. There's this promise of a land. And that also comes back over and over and over again throughout not only the rest of Genesis, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So there's this promise of land. And then there's a promise of global prosperity. What I mean by that is a blessing to others. A promise of blessing to the whole world, not just to some It does say that he'll bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him, but then it also goes on to say that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham and his family. And so are a promise of blessing, of global prosperity. And finally, there's the promise of God's presence. God keeps saying, I will be your God. I will be a God to you. What a promise that is. When God says, I will be a God to you, that tells us something. That's an amazing promise. He doesn't say, you know what? I'm an option. He says, I will be a God to you. I'm doing something in you that makes me so gloriously beautiful and that you want to treasure me and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to make it happen. And so we'll talk about the promise of God's presence as well, Lord willing, next week. But let me finish with this. There is a physical and a spiritual dimension to this covenant. There's a, it's very important to understand. The physical fulfillment of this covenant is not the most important fulfillment. The physical fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is a deposit, a down payment, a preview, a shadow, a foretaste, call it what you will, of a greater fulfillment, which is the spiritual fulfillment of this covenant in Christ. And that's why it's so important to us. This is a promise that the Jesus tribe isn't going to go extinct That's what the Abrahamic Covenant is. The Abrahamic Covenant is a promise that you can hang on to when you read stories that says religion's going to be extinct in seven years. You can say, no it ain't. Because I've got this promise here. It says the Jesus tribe is going to win. The Jesus tribe will never go extinct. It's going on. It's thriving. It's got promises that we can hold on to. Rock solid promises. That you can bank on with rock solid confidence. We need to fully know those promises. So that's what we're going to get into next week. We need to get excited about what God has promised to the Jesus tribe through Abraham. We need to know who the heirs of the promises are. Ultimately in these promises God is recreating Eden. He's giving a new land. A place to be with us forever He's promising a great throng of brothers and sisters from every tribe and nation on earth that we can enjoy him together with. He is promising us happiness, joy, blessing, spiritual prosperity that extends to all who are in him. He's promising us a presence with his people for all eternity. We will be his people, and he will be our God. But how? We'll talk about that some more next week. But here's a clue. 2 Corinthians one twenty, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So with that, let us pray through Him, to Him, for Him, and utter our amen to His glory. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that You made spectacular promises to a Man who was no special man. He had not done anything to merit or to earn your blessing upon him. He was called out. Called out from a a land of idolaters. And then he was sent out to a land of promise. And that's who we are, God. If we have any hope at all, it is not because we have merited or earned your grace. It is only because you pulled us out of the land of idolatry that we're all born into. And you have sent us and are sending us to a land of promise and prosperity. It is by your grace alone. So we come here and we praise Jesus because it is in Jesus that we grab onto these promises with rock solid surety. Lord, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for the Abrahamic covenant. We thank you, Lord, for what it means to us. And I don't think, Lord, I may be wrong. I don't think, Father, that we even have a glimpse of what these promises actually mean. So, Lord, I pray next week, give us a peek. Give us a peek because if we understand the promises and who they're meant for, it should really, really change the way we live. So, God, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we lift up this time we have just to respond to you in song and, and with our offerings and, and prayer. And Lord, this is your time. It's for your glory. It's not for us. And Lord, then we look forward to this time of fellowship afterwards where we just gather, we eat, we talk, we enjoy one another's presence as we just, just give a little bit of a hint of what the fellowship is going to be like in heaven. But with, much, but with much better food, I'm sure. Father, praise be to your glorious name. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as we sing this closing song.
2: Sing a thousand years are in your sight, just like an evening God. Are in your sight just like an evening gone. They fly forgotten as the night dies with the dawning sun. I dare not judge with feeble sense, but trust you for your grace. Behind each frowning providence, there hides your smiling face. In rising and in setting, in cursing and in blessing you are faithful enduring god O timeless one who was and is and who is to come O first and last from age to And is and who is to come, enduring God, O Sovereign One, who was and is and who is to come. Thank you, Lord, that you are the enduring God, you're the one who remains faithful even when we are faithless you cannot deny yourself. Thank
0: you, Lord. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Um, Real quick before we're uh, dismissed for the fellowship meal, Um, first of all, uh, just a reminder that our Easter Egg Scramble is uh, coming up real soon, Uh, it's going to be in just a a few weeks, it's happening on April 23rd, and uh, I was happy to see a lot of folks have signed up uh, to volunteer to help out on the sheet back there, if you have not yet signed up, uh, that sheet's back there on one of the tables, and uh, definitely um, Toby and Kristen would appreciate that, Uh, they can certainly uh, use your help for that, you can talk with Toby or Kristen if you have any questions about the Easter egg scramble that's coming up um, in a few weeks. Um, also, uh, we are opening up nominations for new deacons. Uh, we have one deacon, of course, Mark Pierce, and we appreciate him and he's doing great work, but we feel like it's time to bring on some, some other folks to uh, assist in that ministry as well. And, um, if you are a member of the church, uh, certainly we would appreciate your nomination. Uh, we don't have slips of paper yet pre-made for you. So, uh, if you want to go ahead and nominate someone today, uh, you can just, You know, rip off some paper from something around you and (laughs) just use that and we have a little box right here and you put the nominations in there Um, uh, if you want to take a few days uh, to pray about that if you haven't prayed about that yet uh, that's fine we'll have some slips made up for you next time so you can go ahead and uh, and make make your nomination for that Uh, also uh, coming up we've got um, uh, a youth night out uh, with the Gwinnett Braves that game is coming up on April 13th uh, information about that on your bulletin uh, RSVP let Heather know if you're going to be a part of that and uh, finally next <laughs> Sunday night we're going to have a prayer meeting with the men uh, right here and I hope you can join us for that that's going to be at 6:30. 30. Uh, let me go ahead and uh, I let me, bring let me, Steve up to give you another announcement.
1: No it's not another I just want to before you pray for the meal uh, one of the men in our church made a wonderful suggestion this morning I believe it's the right thing to do, and it's, a, and it's what we need to do, and that is we're going to let the women and children go first downstairs to eat. Yeah. Okay, so women and children first, uh, men, you will go after that. Um, and actually, I would like to get a couple of our young men, uh, that would be 12 to 18 year olds, young men, to serve drinks down there for everyone. So um, I've got one volunteer here, <laughs> right? Yes, you do. Now, you do now. And uh, and so the other young man who volunteers will come up here and help Noah here in a moment. You have there's another volunteer you're pointing out. All right. And, so we've and got, I we've, see that hand. We've got three volunteers now. All right. Hey, another hand.
0: suggestion, too, um, uh, for if, if you're new or a visitor, uh, I, I want the, the folks yeah. who maybe just visited in the past couple of weeks are new to Harbin's. I want them to get in the front of the line as right. well. All right. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead and pray together, and then we will go ahead and head downstairs to uh, enjoy the, the meal. Father, um, thank you for the word that was preached. I pray that you would help us to hide your word in our hearts so that we may not sin against you, Lord. And uh, I thank you for the food that we are about to enjoy. I thank you for those who have helped put it together. And uh, I pray that you'd bless the food, bless our time and fellowship together, help us to eat and drink To the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen.